I have often ridden in the mountains, different mountain places. Many times I've been in places where there is a sheer drop. And not once when I've ridden in the mountains have I ever cursed guardrails. I like guardrails. In fact, I've been in some places where there is a sheer drop and there are no guardrails. And I've wished there were guardrails. And coming down a steep mountain decline, I have never lamented my brakes. I've always liked my brakes. And I've always thought, don't burn your brakes out. I've always thought, I don't have to pull into one of those big sand piles as I stop my careening car going down the mountain in this death spiral. See, guardrails, brakes are scripture in the life of the Christian. Tells us how to live, keeps us in the proper perspective, keeps us in line. We've sung about the beauty of creation in our worship services. And John Calvin said this, he said that, that apart from the knowledge of Scripture and the reality of the triune God being clearly defined in the Bible, the understanding of God, which is in everyone's heart, is an inexplicable labyrinth, which means it's uh, something you, you can't get your way through. You know there's a God, but how do you define this God? And the Bible clearly defines God. He says we can only define God from the spectacles of, of the Bible are put on us. So, so Psalm 139, as we begin the new year, looking at the character of God, looking at the people we should be. Psalm 139 celebrates the wonder of God. Uh, glorious and mighty is the Lord. All-powerful is God. All-seeing is God. All-knowing is God. By the way, Jonathan Edwards died in 1758, said the chief attribute of God is beauty. I like that. Beauty. Worthy of praise. And so Psalm 139 verses 1 to 6 says, says that God is all-knowing. You know when I sit down, the psalmist says, and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You, you search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You know it com completely. You know it all together. God all-knowing. And then verses 7 to 12 says that, that God is everywhere present. Psalm says, where, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I get up and take the wings to the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It says the darkness is light to you. I can't hide from you. And he says, God's the great creator God. A passage I'll preach on next week. He says, says you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, O God. And my soul knows it very well. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. And when as yet, there was none of them. You know me. You see me. You're everywhere present. You're all-knowing. You deal with me. And so, so as he beholds the character of God, the psalmist prays this prayer, which, which I want to be our prayer. If you're a follower of Christ, you've bowed the knee to him, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and, and see if there is any grievous 
destructive, pollutant way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The, the, the psalmist says, you know, there, there are two ways. Broadly speaking, there are two ways. There's, there's the grievous way, the destructive way, the pollutant way, and there's the everlasting way, the way of the Lord that's filled with joy and life and purpose and harmony and hope. Let me read a few of verses about God being all-wise and watching over us. Send your worship guide. Uh, Jeremiah 6, verse 16 says this. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where, where the good way is and walk in it and you will find rest for your souls. Look for the ancient path. You see, the everlasting way. God is and he has spoken. Or Proverbs 4, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Brighter and brighter, but conversely. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. And then on the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord says there's two builders. One builds on sand and his house crashes, and one builds on the words of Christ and his house stands. When the winds blow and the waves beat against it, it stands strong. The way of life. And then Romans, excuse me, John 8, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are my tr disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And as, as the psalmist understands these things, he cries out, Oh God, God have, have mercy on me. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. This, this isn't a, a kind of a phlegmatic, prayer. This is a pleading. Search me, O God. As I behold your character and your goodness and your glory, search me, O God, and know my heart. And try me, know my thoughts, Lord, and, and see if there's a grievous way in me because my heart will never be perfect this side of heaven. And lead me. Lead, please lead me. It's, it's a prayer passion. A man I respect very much wrote this letter to a friend. He was a theologian. Westminster Seminary says this, My conviction is that the flesh is so strong in the Christian, and we still deal with sin, that each of us needs a healthy fear of our own capacity for ruining the work of God. I am, I am very much afraid of myself, and I think that is a good place to be provided. I take my fears to Jesus and ask him to cleanse me of my will to power. Indeed, a believer really needs to be broken before God every day, or he will break up God's work in his life with his willfulness, or let it slip into spiritual death through his sloth. So as, as the psalmist sees his heart, he says, God, please guard me. Please guide me. Uh, a few years ago, there was a man named Woody Allen who's made many films and is well-known. Woody Allen uh, was called out by his lover with whom he had been living off and on for 13 years, never married, had a child by her, a little boy. Uh, but she had adopted a South Korean girl and it came out that Woody Allen was having an immoral relationship with his wife's, excuse me, his, I guess, common-law wife's adopted daughter. He was 56 and she was 21. And it created quite a stir. And Woody Allen gave a long um, interview to Time Magazine. 
And he talked about the relationship and how so forth and so on. And they did get married and they've had two children of their own. But the, the, the final question was, do you consider this to be um, an unhealthy relationship? He says, you know, who can define health? Who can define unhealthy? And, and then he said this. It's a, it's a quote that I've thought about frequently. He says, you know, the heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to those things. You meet someone, you fall in love, and that's that. The heart just wants what it wants. And I thought, I said, you know, if, if, if my heart is, first of all, that's true, by the way. If my heart is really engaged in the things of God, and I want to be pleasing to Christ, and I want to walk in the way of Christ, and, and I, I'm letting the Holy Spirit shape my heart through the Word of God, and I'm pleading, Holy Spirit, come. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. If, if that, then if my heart is engaged like that, then, then it can be a sorrow. That can be a cry of joy, but if my heart is not where it should be, it is my shame. Because listen, the heart wants what it wants. And I need to have my heart shaped by the character of the living God. That's what I need. So my, my, my question is, how, how did David get to this place of pleading with the congregation in Psalm 139, this incredible passionate prayer? I'm going to mention four things. The first, first thing is, is that David saw the absolute goodness of the Lord. Now, what's amazing to me here is that he's the one who said, of course, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He celebrated the goodness of the living God. And, 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 and David saw the coming Messiah who would take away this, the sin of his people dimly. He knew Messiah was coming he was longing for the coming Messiah, but he saw it like the Old Testament prophets dimly. We see it with full panoramic view. We see the glory of Christ crucified, resurrected, ascended, interceding for us. We have received the outpoured Holy Spirit. How much more, church, should we cry out these things? But listen to some of the things that David cried out about the goodness of the Lord. He says this, verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, I cannot attain it. He said, you put your hand upon me, you hear me in behind and before. He says, God, you care for me that much? Then he says in verse 10, even, even there, when he tries to say, I can't flee from your presence, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He says, it's good. It is good that God is everywhere present. God is all-knowing. And then he talks about verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, which includes me. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it will. Verse 17, he talks about the thoughts of God. How precious to me are your thoughts. How vast the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. And so, so David says, behold the absolute goodness of the Lord. This is a strong quote from, this is from a book by a guy named Plantiga, who's quoting Augustine. So it should be Cornelius Plantiga, a book entitled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Anyway, he says, he says that people who are ennobled, they're ennobled as they seek out for Christ, as they search for Christ. He says, ennobled by the transcendence of its object. But, but the person who curves in on himself, and there he's quoting a guy named Augustine, 
who wants God's gifts without God, who wants to satisfy the desires of a divided heart, ends up sagging and contracting into a little wad. Strong statement. But what he's saying is, is as you pursue Christ and as you have his mind and his thoughts, it ennobles your soul. But when you curve in upon yourself and you want God's gifts without bothering with the giver, it leads to pollution and destruction. And so I, I say to you, church, that I, I want us to pray fervently this prayer from Psalm 139. Search me, O God. You're good. You're glorious. You are God. Search me. Know my thoughts. If there's any grievous way, God, correct me. Teach me. Show me yourself. In 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, he's writing to this young man, and he says this, 2 Timothy 3, 13, says, evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. And how? From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He talks about the inspiration of Scripture. And he says that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says these Scriptures make you wise. They thoroughly equip you. They are the everlasting way. Walk in them. There's a way of destruction. There's a way of pollutant. And there's a way of, of wisdom. One of my favorite passages in the Gospels is in Matthew 9. It's an incredible story. Jesus is going to one of the rulers of the synagogue's house to minister to his very sick, dead, dying daughter. And he's going down the street, and there's a crowd around him, and they're pushing and shoving, obviously. And there's a woman who slips up to the periphery who for 12 years has had a blood disorder, a constant bleeding. And she spent all of her resources with physicians trying to be well, and she was not well. And in those days, if you had a flow of blood, you were considered unclean. You could not be touched. You were segregated. You were segmented. And that's the way she lived her life for 12 years. And she was desperate. And she heard about this teacher who was a miracle worker whose name was Jesus. And, and, and the Bible says that she thought, if only I can touch him, if only I can touch him, maybe, maybe something will happen. And so Jesus is going down the street. He's surrounded by people pushing, shoving, calling out on a very specific and very urgent errand. And this woman comes through the crowd and pushes through them. And, and as they see who she is, an unclean woman, these people would normally pull away and may even cry out, unclean, unclean, because to touch her means that you are defiled. And she fell down and she, she touched the edge of his garment. Just, just like that. And Jesus stopped. And he says to his men, who touched me? I said, who touched you? I mean, there, there are scores of people pushing and shoving and touching. And who touched you? No, he says, somebody touched me differently, basically. And she realized as soon as she touched the edge of his garment, she was healed and she came down and she fell at his feet and worshipped him. And I read that and I think this woman intuitively knew 
that to be in Jesus' presence was to be healed, to be changed. She had no idea that this man walking down the street was eternal God. They had no idea that everything around her that she could see was made by him, through him, and for him. She had no idea he was Messiah King. But she knew that to be in the presence of Jesus was to have healing. And I say, I say to you and I say to me, I say to, listen, I need to get in the presence of Jesus. I need to know that he is good and glorious and he's the king. One of my favorite movies was made in 1959. And for those of you who are a little bit younger, they did have talking motion pictures in 1959. It received 11 Academy Awards, including Best Pictures, called Ben-Hur. Oh, oh. If I were in the gym, I'd say, how many, just in the gym, oh, everybody. If you've seen this movie, raise your hand. Okay. Go see it today, all right? Just go, go see it today. Uh, really, really. If you haven't seen it, you need to repent and just go see it. Uh, it's a story, it's a story, about a, a man named Ben-Hur, who is a man, Charlton Heston. And Ben-Hur is a prince in Israel. He's very wealthy. He grew up with a man named Masala, who becomes a Roman leader. And Ben-Hur is framed for the death of someone that he's not responsible for. Uh, he's sold into slavery. His property is seized. He has to go. He's miraculously saved from slavery, comes back, and his estate and all of his wealth have dissipated to nothing. His estate is broken down. He finds out that his mom and his sister have leprosy, and they're confined to a cave for lepers. Can't even see them. So Ben-Hur is filled with anger and animosity towards Masala, who set him up his friend, and they had the chariot race, and Masala is killed, and it's just, it's, just a, it's just really good. But the way this movie ends, I'm just going to give it away, so you may not have to see it now. But the way the movie ends is Ben-Hur ben had had several sporadic encounters with Jesus Christ. And uh, it's just, just, just YouTube, the end of Ben-Hur. He, he, Ben-Hur follows Jesus when he's betrayed and beaten, and he stands at the foot of the cross. And, and in the movie, when Jesus says, when Jesus dies, the blood that flows from the cross goes into rivulets, into streams, and it flows out in creative and healing power. And Ben-Hur's mom and dad, mom and sister come out of the leper's cave, and they look up to the sky because something has happened, and, and, and they were healed. And they go back to Ben-Hur's broken down estate. And Ben-Hur comes in. And before he sees his mom and his sister are healed, he's greeted by his fiancée. And this man who was an angry zealot who breathed hatred, uh, he, said, he said, I was there when he died. And I heard him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then this is the greatest line in the movie. He says this. I felt his voice take the sword out of my hand. And I, I think of that and I think, when's the last time the voice of Jesus took lust out of my heart? Or took an unforgiving spirit from my relationships? Or took covetousness out of my mind? Or, or, or caused me to go further and harder than I would have gone? Have I been in the presence of Jesus? Good movie. Number two.
The second way we pray this prayer is that the psalmist says, I am significant. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. God has ordered my days. He, he, how marvelous are your thoughts. How wonderful are your thoughts. But he also says, but, 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 I also have grievous ways. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, but, but there are grievous ways in my heart. And I, they have to be conquered by the power of God. See, the, the psalmist understood you, you sow the flesh, you reap corruption. He understood the pollutant nature of sin. He understood what someone will write hundreds of years later. If you sow, to, sow a thought, you reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap character. You sow character and you reap destiny. So that, that we are a, a fearfully and wonderfully made. We're made in the image of God, but we deal with sin. We deal with the grievous way. So he says, God, search me and try me and change me. A book on repentance or part of a repentance by a guy named Thomas Oden says this. It's called The, the, the Joy in the Reversal of Sin. It says, rightly understood, repentance is a source of joy in the freed, renewed life in Christ. Martin Luther the reformer, told his spiritual mentor that the very word that he had, had once been so terrible, repentance, had become the most fragrant of words to him. See, repentance is a change of heart, mind, and direction when you see the beauty of Christ. And, I, and that's what the psalmist is praying here, Lord, make me a repenting man. Make me someone who understands the glory of my creation, the glory of the way you've made me, but also understand that I deal with grievous ways. Make me repentant. And then thirdly, he says, God is inescapable. Therefore, he is present. And he's present to bless or to withhold blessing. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Isn't that silly? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, you are there. If I get up early in the morning and go to the uttermost parts of the sea, you know, guess who's there? God. He is inescapable, and he's good, and he's there to bless or to withhold his blessing. See, one thing that we should say is that we deal with God. The God who is. And because of that, we are we're vigilant. I was reading Matthew recently. I just One of my favorite passages is Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden. But, but really, a couple breaths before that, Jesus says, Woe! Woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, two cities in Israel. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, two non-believing Phoenician cities known for their godlessness, if, if the works that have been done in you were done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So I, t I tell you, it's going to be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon, these godless cities, than for you. And you, Capernaum, one of the chief cities where Jesus lived, ministered. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heaven? No. You'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, now, I just got the attention of my listeners if I'm speaking to a bunch of Jews in the first century. Sodom? I mean, the, the city in Genesis 19 that God burned because of their perversity? That one. 
If the works that have been done in you were done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. So I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow. And then he says, come to me, all you weary and heavy laden. So you see here the, the severity and the mercy of Christ. Severity and mercy. Well, let me tell you. In Romans 1, a phrase is used three times that should cause us to cry out in pain. God gave them over. God gave them up. God gave them over. In other words, God just kind of removes his hand and says, okay, you're going to go the way you want to go. And I say, God, don't ever, 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 ever do that in my life. See, that's why we have to be vigilant. Let me tell you something. Where, where the waves meet, the culture forms. I've, I've got to hurry through, through here. Where the waves meet, the culture forms. Go back to 1959, you know, back in the Dark Ages. Uh, th- there was a, in many ways, there was something of an ethos that was conducive to Scripture, somewhat. Today, there's not. So I, I look at our young people, and I, I look at all of us, and you've got to intentionally build a Christian mind. The Post and Courier this week, headline news, the article's buried in page 8 of section 1, shotgun weddings no longer necessary. Shotgun weddings are weddings that you're kind of forced to be married. Thus, shotgun, okay? And it goes on to say that today everybody, not everybody, but vast hordes of people are just living together. Year, this year, somebody, next year, somebody. They just, living together is the new norm. And I, I just step back and say, you know, if you're going to walk in the way of eternal truth, sex is between one man and one woman in something called marriage, period. It limits your options, period. But, but see, we have to talk and walk with each other and encourage each other to, to think this way. See, God is... It's inescapable, and he blesses or withholds his blessing. Fourthly, um, David understood the spiral down nature of sin. First you're dulled, then you're polluted, and then you're destroyed. Sin is very fertile. Years ago, I had some friends. You know, it's January, everybody's on a diet, right? And we're on a diet, paleo diet, uh, wheat belly diet, um, all you all the chocolate you can eat diet, whatever. Some of you are on some diet. Everybody's on diet in January. Years ago, there was a very popular diet. I don't want to tell you the name because I don't want to misrepresent it because I just heard about it. And the diet went like this. For six days, you watch what you eat. But on the seventh day, you just go for broke. So one day a week, you eat three banana splits if you want to. You just OD on not dark chocolate, but milk chocolate. And you just, you just do it. I just thought, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a scientist or a physician or a dietitian, but that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, how can you recover? But anyway, sometimes I address sin that way. We, we say, you know, I'm going to really be serious about following Christ, but not in this area. This, this area is my one-a-day, blow-it-out approach. See, the problem is sin bleeds over. Sin is fertile. Sin grows. Sin infects. Sin destroys. That's why David is crying out here, oh God, search me and know me. 
You see, that's why the, the, the biblical writers often say, God, give me an undivided heart. So give me an undivided heart to, to really know you. Don't, don't let me live in a divided way. I, if, 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 you're, if you're a man, for example, and you feel like you're not getting the sex you want in your marriage or you're single and you're not getting the sex, then, then, and you feel you're, you're entitled to sit around at night and watch pornography, then my, my, one of my fears is that there, there's, a, a, there's a step, sometimes it's long, sometimes it's short, from going and doing that to going to gentlemen's clubs, which is the ultimate mis- misnomer. And then you start doing that, and it's usually to spiral out. Or, or, or if you're married, and you're a woman, and you like to sit around and talk about what a loser or a poloka or whatever your husband is. See, sin bleeds out in other areas. You can't segment it. And that's why we pray for an undivided hearts. And the way we use our time, our talents, our resources, our energies. Oh, God, work in me. Don't let it pollute my spirit. See what I'm saying? Don't be deceived. It, 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 first of all, it dulls us, then it pollutes, then it destroys. And there, there are people that are going to be in this, our worship services today who are on the precipice of stepping across from being dulled to being polluted. Then they'll be destroyed. I plead with you, behold the beauty of Christ. In 1940, Joseph Stalin had one of his purge systems in Soviet Russia that he had frequently. There was a man named Isaac Babel, who was a well-known author. And Isaac Babel was a committed communist, had fought for the communists, had, uh, but he'd written some things that Stalin and his henchmen thought were maybe a little bit seditious, which they weren't. And so they seized him one night at his house, took him to prison, interrogated him, and beat him until he confessed. And then he had a show trial where he was brought into the court, and he was given a trial for 20 minutes while the firing squad was cleaning their guns. And he was convicted. He said, I didn't do it. I, didn't, I did nothing. I've always been a loyal communist. He was only 45. And as, as they dragged him out of the courtroom to be shot in January of 1940, he cried out, Please let me finish my work. Please, please let me finish my work. And I just thought about us and I thought, you know, do, do, do we see that we've been called as believers in Christ now to something that's significant saying, Lord, let me finish the work. Let me live with intentionality. And, and Lord, to live with intentionality means that I will cry out, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there are grievous ways in me. And God, lead me, lead me in the everlasting way, the green pasture way, the hope, the purpose, the peace way. That's what I want. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. Let's pray very quickly. Lord, thanks for the day you've given us. And take this word and make application. I pray for people who are segmenting areas of their lives into sin. I know all of us struggle with that from time to time. God, please give us undivided hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, today we say goodbye to a dear couple. Kelly and Carissa Graham have led us for six years plus, really almost seven because Kelly was doing worship with us before that. In our, in our worship, there, Kelly's been our contemporary worship leader, um, and you see the family up there as their two children, Hunter and Sage. And Kelly and Chris are leaving this week to go to seminary in California, 
where they're going to be studying and getting a degree in biblical studies. And Kelly asked that God will shape his heart more. And um, they're, they're, they're ready to go. They've got their passport to go to a foreign country, so they'll be going to California. And so we, are, we uh, just want to say as a church to them, uh, thank you. Uh, Kelly has uh, really been a wonderful part of Dean's team. And Kelly has a wonderful gift for music, but he's got a deep theological understanding of the character of God. And that synergism has blessed us. And he also has married a world-class person in Carissa. So I think it's been a great, a great, great for us. So just thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to pray for them as we're dismissed. Lord, thank you for uh, Kelly and Carissa, uh, for the joy of knowing them, for the joy of seeing Kelly minister so wonderfully uh, here at this place, but also uh, in, in to uh, international workers at various places where he has just loved and cared. Thank you for them. Thank you for their marriage, for these children. And we pray that as they go, that you would go before them. You would be their rock, their fortress, their strength. We pray you'd surround them with songs of deliverance as they glory in the greatness of Christ. Uh, use them, teach them, mold them. And thank you for molding us through their ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.